0: Good morning. We continue our walk through the book of Revelation. I'm sure already heard the text, which is chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. A compromising church. To compromise, to bargain, to negotiate, to acknowledge, to concede, etc., etc. It came across a story... It's a little dated, but just bear with me. Before 1974, there was a huge portion of land in the northern part of Australia that belonged to the superstitious Aborigines. This land was covered with green ants. Now, the Aborigines believed those green ants were sacred and were descendants of their pagan gods. Now, a mining company discovered huge deposits of uranium on that land. So they approached the Aborigines about purchasing the land and then mining it for the uranium. But they would not budge. This is what they said to the mining company. Quote, if you destroy the land of our sacred green ants, our gods will pronounce a curse upon us and we will have years of drought and famine. End of quote. Well, in 1974, they sold that land to the mining company, believe it or not. Do you know what changed their mind? $8.3 million. They may be gods, but for $8.3 million, they can find someone else, somewhere else to go live. Wow. The sad truth is many have sold out for a lot less than $8 million. What about you? Are your beliefs, your values, your principles for sale? Are you willing to compromise any one of those things? Look at verses 14 and 15 of our text. You have there's some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who keep teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, do you things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of morality. So you also have some who are in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. In other words, heresy, false teaching. We looked at this a minute ago, what they got praised for. But I want you to take away, if anything, this morning, that church compromised to a degree now we look at the city of Pergamon Pergamon Pergamum get it right it was approximately 70 miles north of Smyrna and about 15 miles inland there was a fortress that rose more than a thousand feet above the plain of the river Caicos approximately 10 miles from the Aegean coast prominent feature was the gleaming temple structure and the altar dedicated to Zeus the Soter, or Zeus the Savior. And to some, as they entered the city, the great altar appeared to be something of a throne. That's what's left of the great altar. But when they saw that, as they came in from the seacoast, they would see that as a great altar. Now, another additional feature that gave fame to the city was the hospital and temple of Escalapius, and she was also, or he was also referred to as a soter or savior. Now an interesting thing about this, they had a symbolic service, a symbolic servant that was used in worship, and it's passed through time today to dates us. If you look at the medical symbol today, there's two serpents intertwined on the medical symbol. And Pergamon was the center of the imperial cult in Asia. It was three times they named the temple sweeper or warden of imperial worship. And more than anything else, that alone made it the living city, living city in the province. Now, I went to that quite fast, but keep all that in mind because it comes to bear as we look and take apart the letter. Now, the Christians were persecuted there primarily because of the imperial court. That's emperor worship. And that was linked to civil, civic loyalty and patriotism. The Christians were accused of hatred of the human race because they refused to show political loyalty to the emperor. Therefore, they were accused of hating the Roman people. Now, the Jews were tolerated because they represented an ancient nation. They were protected and recognized by a Roman treaty. But Christianity had no such background. It was labeled more of a superstition. And all the more hated for its exclusivism and intolerance of the gods this is what's going on in this city look what he says in verse 12 the one who has a sharp ed- sharp two-edged sword says this and this is a reference to a previous identification of the risen christ where the sharp sword came from his mouth back in chapter 1 verse 16. now the sharp double-edged sword was a symbol of Roman power and justice the Roman council in charge of the whole province was headquartered there that's where he lived he resided there and it was a symbol of his total sovereignty over every life he had total authority and power to execute enemies of the state that's what that represented Now, the Lord identifies himself as the one who has the sharp 2 edged sword. It is the exalted Christ, not Roman officials, not any government, not any president, who is the true judge. The ultimate power and authority belongs to God alone. Nothing the pagans or their gods could ever do to change that. Or as the old monk Martin Luther said, you can kill my body, but his truth will abide still. No matter what they say in this world, it will never, ever do anything to stop the fact that God has total and supreme authority. The one who is the true judge. Now imagine that living there in Pergamon. You know exactly what he's talking about. And the Lord is reassuring them, look, I am the true judge. Look what he says next in verse 13. I know where you dwell or live, Where Satan's throne is. And that depicts a residence or habitation. Habitation, I mean, where you live. They're not merely temporary visitors, but they had their home there. And in the ancient world, the throne signified authority and royal governance. Therefore, Pergamon is named the seat of satanic power. Think about that for a second. Where Satan's throne is. Is. And that throne represents power, authority, and governance. Now, there are several interpretations about what this means. Here are some possibilities. An allusion to Pergamon as the center of pagan religion in general. The apocalypse, like the great throne when approaching from Smyrna, that altar of Zeus. The Escapadean cult. Because it referred to not only Zeus, but that one as well as the Savior. The city's reputation as a center for emperor worship. And it's not hard to imagine all these things, in the perspective of the church there, contribute to a general sense of the presence and power of Satan. Now the Lord has indicated that he's well aware of the efforts of Satan to destroy the person and work of Christ and destroy Christians in the city through its various pagan afflictions. And we look around our world today, specifically here at home. What is happening to our culture? What has happened? Would you say that perhaps the United States is becoming the throne of Satan or where Satan dwells? Surely you can see the presence of the enemy all around us. Attacking everywhere he possibly can. And even in fact, maybe attacking you in this very moment. To either listen to the truth or to listen to him. May I say in passing, ladies and gentlemen, I don't know where you stand on this issue. I'm not prepared to really talk in length about it. But there is spiritual warfare. We do have an enemy. And he is real and he is powerful. More powerful than you and I. The only way we can defeat him is with the Lord through the Holy Spirit. Look, he says in verse thing, in spite of all this, in spite of all that going on, you hold fast my name and did not deny or renounce my faith. They continue to hold fast to remain faithful to the name of Jesus Christ. And that word name is often used to speak of the person's basic characteristics. Therefore, to remain true to Jesus' name means to live up to the responsibility of this new identity and resist the lure, the enticement, or the appeal, or the temptation of the world. We are to be different, dearly beloved. We are called out of the world. We are to live in the world but not be of the world. And that phrase, do not deny my faith, has a connotation of perseverance, steadfastness, faithfulness in the face of persecution. It reminds me of Luke chapter 12 verses 8 and 9. And I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men the Son of Man will confess him also before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be not be denied before the angels of God. Once again, we see a situation where they could just give in. We do. come to the part where they've compromised on, but they could have gave in in the face of persecution. And let's face it, you've been at work, people give you a hard time, find out you're a believer, some people will poke you just to see how far they can push you. Before you lose it. We are followers of Christ. We bear that name. And to live out that name faithfully means we have to take on his characteristics. We have to love like Christ. We have to forgive like Christ. We have to act like Christ. We have to talk like Christ. Literally become Christ himself. Become like Christ in every aspect of our lives. Look what he says in verse 13 again. Even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful. Killed among you. Now the text doesn't tell us who this guy is. Now secular history tells us a little bit more about him. Apparently he was brought before the temple of Caesar and he was told to cry out, Caesar is God! But his response was in the same fashion, very loudly and boldly, Jesus alone is God! Well, the Roman official looked at him and said, don't you know the whole world is against you? And his response, then Anipas is against the whole world. Put yourself in that situation, dear beloved. You know what's going to cost you? Not cost you calling a name or losing friends, but this could cost you your very life. You know what happened to him? Apparently he was put into a large hollow brass bull. So it was a piece of brass that was fashioned like a bull they put a fire underneath it, they put him in there closed the door and literally roasted him to death I'm somewhat embarrassed in this moment standing here proclaiming God's word, I stand on the shoulders, shoulders of giants who stood in the face of massive persecution and did not budge. He was killed among you where Satan dwells, where he lives. That's proven by the martyrdom of Antipas and also by the total oppression of the pagan populace and Roman officials. That's what he commends them for. But then in verse 14, he says, I have these plaints. Complaints against you. You have there some who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Now, Balaam was a Gentile prophet who was consulted by Balak, king of Moab. Balak had observed what Israel had done to the Amorites in Numbers chapter 22, verse 3. So Moab was in great fear because of the people, for they were numerous, and Moab was in dread of the sons of Israel. You can find this story in Numbers chapter 22 through 25. I'm going to do my best to just kind of sum it up, but I would advise you to go back and read the story in entirety. Basically, Balaam was a Gentile prophet, and Balak was scared, so Balak sent for Balaam, going to pay him a little bit of money, and he wanted Balaam to curse Israel. And he said, well, I'm not sure. He consulted God about the issue, and God told Balaam not to go. But guess what? Balaam decided to go. And perhaps you heard the story about Balaam and his donkey. He was riding his donkey. The donkey wouldn't move. He kept hitting the donkey, and the donkey finally turned around. God spoke through that donkey and said, why are you hitting me for? I'm paraphrasing. I see the angel of the Lord in front of me. But finally he gets there on the, on the uh, edge there, this, this kind of cliff looking out. And he can see 2 million plus members of Israel down there. And so Balak tells him to curse him and he said, look, I, I cannot curse what God has blessed. Three times this went on and three times he gave the same answer to Balak. I cannot curse what God has blessed. Well, then they finally departed ways. Nothing really happened. But we find out in a In 25, verses 1 through 3, that the Israelites committed immorality with pagan women and idolatry by worshiping Baal. That's in chapter 25. Well, what happened? They split away. How could this happen? Well, if you keep reading in Numbers, it's not until Numbers 31 you find out something very interesting. I'm just going to paraphrase. Balaam didn't curse them. But he told Balak, hey, you got some, I'm paraphrasing now, you got some beautiful women down there. Be friends with them. Let the men Make friends with Israel. They'll marry your women and soon enough, they'll be sacrificing the idols and doing this other stuff. And that's exactly what happens. There's more to be said about that story. I'm just trying to make it a little short here this morning. So Balaam in Jewish tradition was considered to be a false teacher, a false prophet. And that was passed on to generation to generation. A young Jewish boy or girl would hear about, don't give way to the teachings of Balaam. And they knew exactly what that meant. And he's talking about you're holding to the teaching of Balaam and kept teaching Balaam. He's referring back to that story. Don't follow false teaching don't let him lead you into temptation Balaam telling Balak to lead him in to women and that's a clear indication and warning to the children of Israel do not do that and that's what he's talking about the church here you're following these false teachers that are leading you down the primrose path if you will don't do that because that incidence with Balaam and Balak and also Aaron building the, building the golden calf at the bottom of Mount Sinai. Remember that story? Those are two stories that were kind of embarrassment to Israel. The worst two times when, well, there's more than two times, but that was the worst. Two, two times that were the worst of seeing Israel fall by the wayside and do things against God, what he wanted to do. Because he said they keep teaching Balak in verse 14 to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. Leading a person into apostasy. A stumbling block to fall away from Christ. And the rejection of Jesus by the Jews. Matthew chapter 18 verse 7. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it's inevitable that stumbling blocks come. But woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. If you haven't realized it yet, and I, I, I know that not everybody in this room goes to facebook or twitter whatever but there's a bunch of false teaching out there and it sounds good it takes just a little bit of truth and they twist it if you don't really know what the word says you will fall to it thinking that yes i'm doing what god wants me to do that's why bible study is so important to do on your own and with the group of people to get in and see what the word says, you realize the Bible's always under attack about being the Word of God, correct in every form, and in, errant, and it's still under attack. What do you believe about the Bible? How would you answer someone's question? If they came to you with that. First Corinthians chapter one, verse twenty-three and twenty-four. We preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentile foolishness but to those who are called both jews and greeks christ the power of god and the wisdom of god that's a stumbling block you mean to tell me that guy who was crucified on the cross dot a cruel death reserved for the worst of the worst for the criminals is really the messiah and the savior of the world the jews can't wrap their mind around it because they've been taught what the messiah would do they've set up the kingdom again and then when we become christians there's a false teaching once you become a christian woohoo! life is good you become rich and you never get sick. If you have enough faith, you give enough. Those are two qualifications. That's not taught in Scripture. Jesus tells us, you're going to have persecution. You will. But take heart, he says, I have overcome the world. They, what do they do? They ate things, sacrificed to idols, and commit acts of immorality. You see that the last part of verse 14. Al-Jawdry, in this specific case a Pergamum, was probably taking place, they would have feasts in honor of Caesar, and of course, Caesar was considered to be, quote, God and Savior. And dealing with the heresy or immorality never wins friends. And that's what the church needs to do. Because when you start going those two things, it introduces confrontation, conflict, and uncertainty into the church. But the church must take action if they desire to be the recipient of God's blessings. He said, look, you're compromising here. You take care of it. Perhaps some of you are are mature enough to remember a time of church discipline. And when people really got out of sorts, the church would take discipline upon them. But we are to act just like the Bible tells us. That's another time, another story I can tell you about. But the church was tolerating all these things. And look what he says in verse 15. talking about tolerating You have some, in the same way, hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now remember, the church in Ephesus was commended for opposing that teaching. But the church here in Pergamon is tolerating it, and they're rebuked for it. Although they remain faithful, they allowed heresy to come in. It was allowed to flourish, endangering the entire church. So the problem was not external, it was internal. kind of amazing to me that you have the Balaam and Balak and Nicolaitans somewhat different teachings in some ways but all had the same result false teaching and heresy look what he says in verse 16 therefore repent or else I'm coming to you quickly and I will make war against them Notice the stress of the coming is to the whole church. You see that? I am coming to you. Not to the false teachers, but to you. Now the sword of my mouth, that wrath is especially addressed to the heretics. However, the true and faithful believers are given a choice. Either confront them, make war against them, church discipline, confront them, Or else God will come and do that for them with far more drastic results. Wow. Can I just say in passing, has the American church, the church here in America, as we know her, been guilty of compromising? Letting false teaching come in and take root? Is it because we've compromised our society and cultures where it's at? See, before we can take care of any business outside the house, we have to take care of business inside the the house. We go outside. So no wonder our society is in the shape that it's in when we have compromised and haven't taken care of business on the inside. Look what he says in verse 17. He who overcomes to him, I'll give some hidden manna. Well, of course, the one who overcomes is the one who listens to what the Spirit is saying. They will conquer through their obedience and perseverance, even in the midst of terrible persecution. They will overcome the external by first overcoming the eternal. Eternal. Internal, not eternal. See, so I'm getting carried away. Never mind. You guys still alive out there? All right. All right. Uh, the hidden manna. Now, there's a lot of ink spilt on this. The interesting thing is a reference back to Jewish liter- literature that talk about the fall of Jerusalem in 586 BC. And during that time Jeremiah, Jeremiah was warned right before the city fell to take all the contents of the tabernacle and go hide it on Mount Sinai. Of course one of those was the Ark of the Covenant. What was the Ark of the Covenant. The tablets, the law, it had Aaron's rod that miraculously budded and you had a pot of manna. And so It talks about how he hid them, and then the coming Messiah would know where it's at, and he would get it and give it to the people who believe. That's one possibility people talk about of the hidden manna. I'm not quite sure about that. We don't really know, but most likely this is where I stand. Hidden manna. As you stand in the midst of persecution and you overcome, I will give you spiritual nourishment To help you to stand against the persecution. In other words, when that time comes, don't worry about what you're going to say or what you're going to do. I will give you what you need in that moment. How many of you don't go witness to somebody because you're afraid what you're going to say? I would tell you about 10 out of 10 times, God is putting that person on your heart because he knows what's going on. And he's going to say, don't worry about that, Tim. I'll tell you what you need when you get there. That's the reason prayer is so important before you go. They get a foretaste of heavenly manna. And the last part of verse 17, I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone. Now, white stones were given to those who competed in gladiator games. It was an act of, okay, you don't have to compete no more before you die. Here's your white stone, get out. they are also used to enter the feasts. There is also overtones of a vote of acquittal that you're innocent. And the color white is usually often associated with holiness. So, it's likely a a reference to the holiness and righteousness of the overcomer. And a new name, possibly a reference back to Isaiah 62, verse 2. The nations will see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you will be called by a new name which the mouth of the Lord will designate. But let me, just bear with me, as we talk about a new name, It shows us that Christianity is not a religion. It's relational. See, all these religions out there claim to to tell you how to make peace with God. Christianity says there's nothing you can do to please God. Rather, God reached down to you through the person of Jesus Christ. And it's relational. Another, Another religion that I know of talks about having a personal relationship with God through his son. Would you like to go talk to the President of the United States this afternoon? Get on a plane and go to D.C.? How many? Raise your hand. Oh, you guys ain't no one raising your hand. You had an opportunity to sit in the Oval Office and have the President's attention for 10 uninterrupted minutes. Would you take that invitation? Would you go? Well, you know, regardless of what you think of the man, it's the office of the presidency. That's a big deal. You won't talk to the the leader of the free world and no one's gonna come and interrupt you for ten minutes. You could tell him what you're thinking. And I would suggest you do nice words and be polite. But you had his complete and utter attention. Dearly beloved, I've said this before. You can enter into the throne room of the very one who let Joe Biden become president in the first place. And that's Almighty God himself, the true judge who has all authority, who is sovereign, and can have his full and complete attention. And you can come confidently to that throne, not because of anything you have done, nothing you could do, but based on the shed blood of Christ, you can enter that throne room. Wow. And you don't have to wait for an invitation. Come as you are now. Seek him now. You know, in despite of everything that's going on, you know the current events, I'm not getting all that, evangelicalism has not declined. It's maintained its status quo and even sometimes has gone up. Believe it or not, church attendance is kind of flat out some is the you know some is uh declining and it really depends there's evangelicalism and then there's born again christians You make that disclaimer but here's the thing if you talk to many people on the street they say yeah i believe in god some will say i believe in jesus i attend church and so on and so forth look at our own denomination the biggest one in all of america millions and millions of people who proclaim to say, yes, I'm a believer in Christ, I'm also a Southern Baptist. Then one thing that escapes us is with all that out there, we seldom influence or affect or impact society as a whole. Why is that? If all these people claim to be Christians, why are we not having any impact our society, well I, I think we're having some this one not understand me, but as a whole why is that? Why hasn't certain things declined? Why do we not impact our culture and society? This is Tim's opinion because a lot of times it's hard to distinguish between believers and non-believers and that's the result of many false teachers being in the church today. And most of all, not all of them, cults have originated church settings. This is not limited to the United States, but this is a real raw problem. This is what's going on. This is the heart of the letter. Do not compromise. Oh, we can have a discussion about the color of the carpet, how big the pew should be, and the ceiling fans. I have my own preference, and that's nothing. Everybody has their own preference. Okay, let's have those discussions. But if it comes about the foundations of the faith, I cannot compromise any shape, form, or fashion. I have to stand on Christ. He was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life. He laid down his life willingly as a sacrifice to all. There is only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. The Bible is the word of God, inherent. Not only just what it says, even by the words that are there, God inspired those words. He guided those men's hands. It's what God communicated to us, his love letter to mankind. Those things I cannot budge on. Do you realize that there's people standing in the pulpit today who will deny that Jesus was born of a virgin? Will deny that he rose from the dead, literally physically erected from the dead? There's even some who are proclaiming it wasn't the serpent who lied in the garden of Eden. Rather, than it was God. And this stuff's out on social media. We have to confront it. We have to do something about it. And this begins right here in our own house. I'm not perfect. If I say something wrong, you say I'm wrong, come see me. And if you show me by scripture I'm wrong, I'll say, yeah, you're absolutely right. I was wrong. Because what's hanging in the balance is more important than Tim or Forestburg Baptist Church. What's hanging in the balance is the destination of people's souls. From eternal damnation or eternal reward. And there's nothing to be taken lightly. With that, i end with this question. Are we all too often guilty of watering down our theology? Theo being God, ology meaning study of. What we know about God, what we teach about God, what we read about. Are we guilty of watering it down? The results of attempting to water down scriptures, the gospel. Because it's too hard for people to take it. Is that because so many want a feel-good religion? I want... A service that blesses me. Well, I do too. It's hard preaching some of these sermons. You can't get away from it. So, is it right there? There's some hard things in that Bible. But see, my salvation is not necessarily dependent on what I do or do not do, my salvation is dependent upon my relationship with Christ. Praise God for that. And I want to end with this I said this once already, it needs repeating. Christianity is not a religion. It is relational at its very core. A relationship between you and the creator himself made possible through the sacrifice of his son. See, God hates sin. God cannot be in the presence of sin. He had to take care of the sin problem. Now there's two options you and I have. We can go about not caring what's going to happen, live our lives the way we see fit, eat, drink, and be merry, if you will, and we die, we have to pay for our sin. Eternal damnation. However, we can willfully submit and bow our knee to Christ this time and let his sacrifice pay for our sin debt and enter into eternal reward. It's your choice. It's your choice. And there's a time and a preaching for the gospel, beloved, but we need to move on to the deeper things of God. That's why we have table talk. That's why we have Bible lessons and, and what we call Sunday school, Bible study, to address those things. Because I want you, I desire you to be a disciple and go out there and speak of your faith with boldness. And give a reason for the hope that you have within yourself. There's a lot of false teaching out there. Unless you take the time to get that Bible out and to read it, and to apply it, to study it, you will fall prey to what Pergamum was doing, and you fall to heresy and false teaching that affects the the church and our effectiveness to reach the lost. Because if we don't understand what we believe and stand on it, how in the world are they going to know what we believe and why we stand on it? I'm a Christian, follower of Christ first, but I'm a Southern Baptist for a reason. If you want to know that, see me after service. But now is the invitation. What are you going to do? Have you given your life to Christ? Have you, are you a member of a local body? like to have you here, but you need to go somewhere that's preaching Christ. Have you compromised? Now, let's just be honest. Compromise because you're fearful. You have nothing to fear. Yes, I do fear too. It's part of the human condition. But at the end of the day, even in death, I do not fear because God has me in his hands. And nothing can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. What say you? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. Father, I pray that you will guide us your word we don't want to be guilty of being false teachers to be stumbling blocks to our fellow brothers and sisters or to the people to which we are trying to win to Christ Father have mercy on us we come repenting of how we all in some form or fashion compromised. Father, give us strength, give us discernment, give us wisdom, give us boldness, and give us courage that we can faithfully stand upon your word and your word alone. May your spirit continue to move in this place and may we respond as you see fit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.